Well, this morning, we meet the heir of a fortune. His is a story of romance, famine, even war. Twin sons battled with one another before they could even breathe. And like his father, he too would be promised great lands and innumerable descendants and widespread blessing. This is somewhat surprising after all. A dagger came only four feet from his heart, held by his father. Well, this morning we hear the story of Isaac, Isaac the son of Abraham. And like the rest of our summer series, this story is a lot more about God than it is Isaac. You see, God is a God of abiding faithfulness. And today we see three displays of this. It is an enduring faithfulness, the faithfulness of God. It's important that we underline that word, enduring. No doubt, you and I probably have some concept of faithfulness. I mean, we understand commitment. We think perhaps of a marriage, a a wife faithful to his or a wife faithful to her husband, a husband faithful to his wife. We might even think of God as faithful. God is faithful, right? Now, all of this is not news. But the extent to which God is faithful, that may be news. You and I have all been burned by people who said that they would do things and didn't do them, spouses, children, parents, employees, employers. It might be something as simple as a refill at a restaurant or as serious as divorce papers in the mail. Big or small, we all understand unfaithfulness. And we know from human experience that no person is 100% unfaithful. And we find, unfortunately, in this life, many are often unfaithful. That makes it hard to imagine a God who's completely faithful all the time in every way. He's a God of immense commitment in a very low commitment culture. How committed is God? How faithful is God? It's our first point this morning. God is faithful in his promises. God is faithful in his promises. We pick up in Genesis, Genesis chapter 21. God's never made a promise he didn't keep. Ask Abraham. We learned last week that God promised him a son. Chapter 17, verse 16, God says, I will give you a son by Sarah. We might expect Abraham to bow low before this God and worship him. Yes, my Lord, praise be to God. But no, Abram fell on his face and laughed. One chapter later, God repeats the promise. Sarah hears it. She laughs. At the age of 90, Sarah indeed gives birth, exclaiming, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. This means, of course, the child must be named Laughter, and he receives the the name Isaac, meaning he laughs. 
As good as this news is, as exciting as it might be, it brings a dark cloud over his household. The child grew. Genesis chapter 21, verse 8, Isaac was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abram, mocking. This wonderful celebration grew dark. Isaac would have been around two or three, year old, two or three years old at this time. That's the typical age for weaning. And in the room were Hagar and Ishmael. Notice the title in verse 9. Hagar the Egyptian. This is one way of reminding us that the promised seed of Abram, the promised line of Abram, it would not be through Hagar. And if you can recall, in an effort to, quote, help God produce an heir, Sarah gave Abraham, her maid, Hagar. They produced a child named Ishmael. This whole thing now ruins the party. You now have competing sons. The Bible says that Ishmael mocked Isaac. It's difficult to determine exactly what he did. Our English Bibles bear this out using a number of different words to describe it. Some Bibles read he was mocking, laughing, making fun, playing, scoffing. That word in the Hebrew can be as as harmless as just innocent playing or as dark as something sexual. Paul in Galatians chapter 4 is going to reflect back on this scene and he's going to call it a persecution. But whatever it was, whatever happened, it was enough to incite the scorn of mom. And she says in verse 11, drive out this maid and her son for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And God gives the okay to Abraham for this to take place. He can follow this request of his life or wife to follow the desire of his wife. We should note that God did care for Hagar and Ishmael, though they departed the household, God still cared for them. But here we are, advanced in age, Sarah and Abram. Sarah being barren, God kept his promise to Sarah. He kept his promise to Abraham. She bore Isaac. So will this boy make it? We might even ask, will he survive his teens? Remember, last week we concluded with the offering of Isaac. It was the true test of any parent's loyalty. Will we love God more than our children? Will we put nothing else before him? God himself, he told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Take your son, your only son, and offer him as a burnt offering. And just as Abraham prepared to thrust that dagger into the chest of Isaac, he raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. 
The New Testament will reflect back on this. It'll provide some commentary. Hebrews 11, Abraham considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received back Isaac as a type. That's wonderful. He's unable to see the outcome of this. He's unable to see God's full plan, but he knew God keeps promises. God is faithful to keep his promises. For you and I this morning, we have his promises in the word of God. One statistic records 7,706 promises in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 28 has the most with 133 in one chapter. The New Testament contains 1,104 promises. That's a total of 8,810 promises in the Bible. God keeps each one. Psalm 89, but I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips, says God. He never fails. Here's just a handful of examples. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He never fails to, to limit our temptations. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. 1 John 1, 9, to forgive your confessed sins. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive. How about when you suffer for obeying God? Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. What if your faith might fail? But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. And God keeps all he calls 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 24, faithful is he who calls you. He will also bring it to pass. God is faithful in all his promises. And let me add this observation to these texts. You heard as we read those texts, repetition. You and I, we we need repetition. We need the repetition of God's word. You and I need to come back to this, to this well of promise time and time again. This would be one function of the Bible in the life of the believer. It's to, to deliver you and I potent, high-test truth. And we need this because we forget. We forget of the promises of God. Even beyond that, our lives are always changing. The circumstances of our lives are always changing. We may read one verse yesterday and one verse today, and it could hit us completely different because our lives are always changing, and we need God's promises. You see, we read our Bibles not always to learn something new, though that may happen, but we read them to hear something old, something very old, the truth of God and the promises of God. The Word of God is truth. God is faithful to keep his promises. Secondly, how is God faithful? He is faithful in his love. He is faithful in his love. Genesis chapter 24. 
This chapter reads like a sweet romance. It's the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, perhaps not insignificantly. It's pretty clean in its structure. There's a bride sought, a bride is found, a bride is married. But again, we know ultimately this is a story about God. And it's fitting that the faithful love of God is told through a story of love. In fact, there's one word in this chapter that ties it all together. It's the word loving kindness. Loving kindness. In Hebrew, it's pronounced hesed. Now, you and I don't need to be Hebrew scholars to understand our Bibles, and we're thankful for that. But this is one word that you should know. Hesed. Loving kindness. It's almost difficult to fully capture the breadth of this word when it speaks of God. It's an attribute of God. This is a a loyal love. It's a faithful love. Some call it a covenant love that God has for his people. This is the kind of love that acts on behalf of someone else. This type of love, in in it is bound up mercy and and grace. In chapter 24, it makes four important appearances. In verse 12, verse 14, verse 27, and then later in verse 49, my Bible says, deal kindly, but really it should read, deal in loving kindness. This word just ties the whole account together, and it's beautiful. So let's see how this perfection of God, his loving kindness, works itself out in Isaac's life. Now, Abraham seeks a bride for his son. Isaac is growing up. It's nearing time for marriage. In the first few verses of this chapter, Abraham taps his servant, and he sends him on a trip. Go find a wife for Isaac. Now, the point of emphasis on this command is on the location for the hunt. Verse 3, do not go to the Canaanites. Those would be the local people. They have their local practices, their local religion. It's false religion. That's not going to suffice. Verse 4, go to my country. That's the command. But the servant sees a problem. What if I find a wife? And what if she won't come back with me? Should I take Isaac back to Mesopotamia? Well, verse 6 is like a big exclamation mark from Abraham. Beware that you do not take my son back there. Verse 7, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from my land of birth and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you. And you will take a wife for my son from there. Abraham has complete confidence in the Lord. Well, the servant arrives at his destination. Interestingly, he has all that he needs to woo this wife-to-be. Many camels, many goods. That sends a particular kind of message. It's more Porsche than Pinto, if you're following me. So upon arrival, he stops, showing off all of his wealth and his goods. He stops to refuel. In verse 12, O Lord, 
the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. There's three points of this prayer we want to examine. First, notice that he prays on behalf of Abraham. He knows that God's faithful love has been unending toward Abraham. Oh Lord, may it show up again today. Secondly, he prays that way. He prays for today. Grimmy success today. Not, not tomorrow, Lord. May it happen today. I just got here, but may I find that bride this afternoon. And thirdly, he appeals to God's treatment of Abraham. Again, God possessed a loving kindness for Abraham. He, he set his love upon him. And then verse 14, he gets into some specifics. He continues praying. Behold, I am standing by the spring, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be to the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink, and who answers, drink and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom you have appointed to your servant Isaac. That is one specific prayer. I I wonder, does God even answer prayers like that? Will he answer prayers like that? Verse 15, before he had finished speaking, Rebecca arrives. This is a good start. Checkbox number one, girl. (laughs) And he tests her out. He asks her for a drink. Please let down your jar so that I may drink. Drink, my Lord, box two. And I can just imagine him peering over the cup, his eyes watching her, watching her lips, listening, waiting. Camels, camels, talk about camels. And verse 19, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. That's an extraordinary turn of events. And just so we all know, God can answer prayer that way. He's not obligated to, but we may pray that way. I say God welcomes those kinds of prayers. And God can answer specific prayers. God loves to give good gifts to his children. Serving gets to witness firsthand how, how God chose to care for Abraham and now provides for him in his house. But this find is not yet complete, not yet. The family needs to weigh in. Abraham is wealthy. Abraham is generous. Remember, we talked about the camels and the goods. And the servant will go on and give this, Rebecca, very fine gifts. Verse 22, she returns home that night from meeting this man at the well with two bracelets and a nose ring. Now, that might yield a particular response from some of the dads in our audience this morning. Don't email me. In the ancient Near East, this was culturally normal. This was the way you went about wooing a bride, or perhaps providing a dowry, or, or, or winning someone to your idea. Now, you and I might expect to meet Dad next in this account, but we meet a man named Laban. He's the brother of Rebecca, and Laban's quite excited to see this wealth. 
Verse 30, when he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, he went to the servant. It's almost as though Laban is running out of his home to meet these people. This servant of Abraham receives amazing hospitality, but we also remember he's not here for that. He's not along for the hospitality. He's on a mission. Now, in the rest of this chapter, verses 34 through 49, a lot of the account we've covered so far is going to be recounted. Most of all, what's most significant is that he's going to ask Rebecca to be Isaac's wife. Will you deal in loving kindness with my master? In other words, will you treat Abraham as God has treated him? And in verse 51, both the brother and the father accept this. Here is Rebecca before you. Take her and go. Let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. In our third and and final movement in this chapter, Isaac marries. Interestingly, in this entire account, he doesn't appear till the end in verse 62. Verse 63 presents him as as walking or praying. He's um, doing something in the field. Some Bibles uh, translate the word meditating. But the point of the text here is that Isaac and Rebekah, they become one flesh. God's been faithful to provide Isaac with Rebekah. And more than that, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. You know the song, but you also know more. You now know the word. The hesed, the loving kindness of the Lord, never ceases. God's loving kindness that he extends to his people, it's dependent upon God himself. God set his love upon Abraham. And God set his love upon Isaac. And he kept that promise of land and seed and blessing. He kept that promise going. The people of God, you and I, Abraham, Isaac, daily we do things that can cause the love of God to fluctuate, to go up and down, to be present and to be gone. But that's not the love of God. That is not how God's love works for us. Paul makes this wonderful argument in the book of Romans. He observes that that almost no one dies for someone who's good. In fact, there's very few people who would even exchange their lives for a righteous person. And this is how we know that God loves us. Paul goes on, he demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, in the loving kindness of God, he gave his son to die. Not for the righteous, not for the good, that's Paul's point. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. These are not the kind of people who are children of God. They're not the family of God. They're not deserving of his love. He did it for people who are indifferent and people who are ignorant of Christ. There are people who are going this way, and it is not God's way. Those of this morning, someone may well ask, how do I know that God loves me? Jesus died for you. He gave his life for you. And the Bible says that if you believe that, if you believe that he died for your sins and you believe you have sin, that you'll be forgiven. Jesus rose from the dead so that you no longer have to pay the penalty for your sin. The loving kindness of God makes a difference. While we've seen God keep his promises, 
And we've seen God's loving kindness that he's faithful in both of these ways. But thirdly, how is God faithful? He's faithful in adversity. He's faithful in adversity. This is chapter 25 and chapter 26. And in these chapters, the sun is setting in the life of Abraham, the father of Isaac. And we know that God promised Abraham an heir, and Abraham's now going to pass that baton, pass that promise on to his son Isaac. Chapter 25 confirms this. In verse 5, we see Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Now, to be clear, he had other options. He had other sons. And verse 6 reveals that. We also know he had Ishmael. But none of them were the son of the promise. In verse 11, it came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son, Isaac. But the promises of God were not without adversity. And we're going to see it now in Isaac's sons, in his lies, and in his wells. Now, like Sarah, Rebekah was barren. Isaac's wife was Rebekah. Excuse me, Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was barren. And it's worth noting, across the board, and across these major patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all three of them, had a wife who was barren, at least for a time. In other words, there was no other way to explain it except that God had gifted them a child. For 20 years, Isaac awaited a son. In verse 26, we note that Isaac is 60 at the birth of the sons. Back in verse 20, Isaac was 40 when they married. And Rebekah, as we've alluded... She's going to have twins, but with great difficulty. In verse 22, the children struggle together within her. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? She went to inquire of the Lord. Within her womb, the two fought. That word struggled can mean jostled or oppressed. The words used in the book of Judges to describe the death of King Abimelech. A certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. Same word. There's a real pain about this pregnancy. There's a real adversity happening inside of her. And her experience concerns her. This can't be good. What's the point of being pregnant, she asks. Now, we're going to talk more about these twins next time. But the point here is that God is faithful in her adversity. He met Isaac, and he met Rebekah. He met them over time. It wasn't right away, 20 years, but he met them in their pain. It reminds us that neither timetables nor trials, none of those things can thwart God's faithfulness. What about conflicts? Surely you and I get ourselves in jams. That can break God's faithfulness. That is not true. It is not true for us. It is not true for Isaac. In verse in chapter 26, famine strikes the land. God tells Isaac to stay nearby. <clears throat> Though there's famine, don't travel off to Egypt. God's going to reconfirm his covenant 
with Isaac. Verse 4, this is the covenant that he made with Abraham. I give you land and seed and blessing. Verse 6, Isaac obeys. Verse 7, Isaac stumbles. Does this sound familiar? When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca, for she is beautiful. You might recall that's a page out of Abraham's playbook. And what he did is he lied to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, and bad things may very well have happened had Abimelech not spotted Isaac caressing Rebekah. Verse 12, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. What a kind God. But this blessing brought a second problem, envy. Then retaliation. The Philistines start plugging up his wells with dirt. His dad, back in his day, had dug wells in the area. You couldn't grow herds, you couldn't water herds, you couldn't survive without these wells. And note verse 16 here, Isaac's going to get the boot from King Abimelech, and not for lying about his wife, but for finding success. God blessed him, and it hurt Isaac moves along. Keep in mind, he's still following God. He's still obeying God to remain in the land. Probably would have been tempting to just say, hey, I'm going to figure my own way out of this. I'll survive apart from this adversity. I don't need this stress. Genesis 26, verse 19. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The water is ours. So he named the well Essek, that means dispute, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over it too. So he named it Sitna, that means opposition. He moved away from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he named it Rehoboth. For he said, At last the Lord has made room for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. Abimelech now sees the fullness of God's hand in the life of Isaac, and they cut a covenant, and they ultimately part ways. It's worth mentioning that Isaac's behavior here has generated different views on the kind of man that he was, especially the way he handled this business with the wells. Some people believe him as a very passive man, very naive in his thinking. Others see him as more strategic even diplomatic. But I think it's helpful at this point to remember that however we might interpret his personality, whether he's an alpha or a beta, whether he's strong or soft, whether he's active or passive, loud or quiet, to all men, adversity reaches us all. And God is faithful in adversity. No matter the person, if you're a child of God, God is faithful in adversity. God speaks to Isaac after one more day of digging wells. Verse 24, do not fear, for I am with you. 
Well, what if I've blown it? What if I've created my own adversity? Surely that can break God's faithfulness. It cannot. We don't have that level of power. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself, 2 Timothy 2.13. You see, God's faithfulness is grounded in who God is. Kent Hughes says it this way, what God is, he always is. No man is always himself. God is always himself. He cannot be untrue to his own nature. And I hope you find comfort in that this morning. I hope you find insurance. I hope you find security. One more reason to praise God. Because God is faithful in your adversity. And he's faithful in his promises. And he's faithful in his love. As we now sing, as we close, His faithfulness, it can be our praise because you and I can be thankful because God is faithful. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that it's dependent upon who you are, not who we are. Thank you for being faithful to us in all that you've promised in your word, in the love which you've set upon us. And thank you for being faithful to us in our trials. May we know we're not abandoned. I pray for those of us this morning, Father, who question your promises, who struggle to believe your love for us. I pray for those among us who are in trials and wondering where you are. Oh, Father, I pray that you'd be closer now than ever. We'd feel your love more intimately and that we believe your promises more resolutely. Thank you for being faithful. Oh, Father, we are thankful. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.